technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse. The lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or, or save whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove and welcome to episode two of the Sailor series on the What is Money show. So in episode one, uh, we covered the rise of man through the stone and the iron ages. So we went into ancient technologies. We talked about fire, we talked about missiles, and we talked about hydraulics facilitated by water. And now in this episode, we're going to go a little further uh, in the historic arc of man, and we're going to get into the Dark Ages. Uh, we're going to learn how missing one key step along the path of civilization can actually cause us to slide backwards and to regress, um, and that civilization is it's not a guarantee, right? It is something that must be continually pushed forward and maintained across time. And... Um, We'll also get into how humanity re-emerged from the Dark Ages um, into the, the, ultimately into the Industrial Age and the Steel Age, uh, which enabled a lot of very important technologies like cities and aviation and railroads, things of this sort. So we're going to touch on, again, the, the benefits that are offered by standardization. Uh, and also the benefits of protocols, similar to the ones we talked about um, in ancient Roman times earlier, and how the economic benefits of these standardizations to one language uh, or one protocol actually accrete to civilization. So these cost efficiencies accrete to us um, in the form of, of being able to satisfy wants faster, cheaper, and better. Um, and that's actually the force that drives civilization and, and increases uh, both economic and network density for mankind. Um, we're also going to talk about how violence and monopolization have shaped the course of history, um, how violence has been used to extract rents and taxes, um, how gatekeepers have influenced the course of history, um, and how monopolies have, have developed uh, in both a natural and an unnatural way. And then we'll also talk about packaged foods uh, and how much of an influence that had on civilization, uh, enabling us to store energy in a leak-proof container, um, and also how mankind's ability to eradicate some infectious disease, diseases was such a huge boon to humanity uh, in terms of increasing life expectancy um, and, and quality of life overall. And again, the, 
the general aim of this is to construct a solid intellectual foundation on which to understand the profound impact that we believe Bitcoin will have on the world. Um, and you can think about Bitcoin, as Saylor refers to it, as an engineering breakthrough. And that for the first time in history, we have a technology that is able to store the energetic life force that money represents. Uh, again, we can think of money as a claim on all other sources of energy in the world, right? Whether it's capital, uh, chemical energy, kinetic energy, uh, food energy, all these types of energy, money acts as a, a kind of meta energy. Um, and we've never had a monetary technology that was totally leak proof and that it did not lose value over time. So hopefully by drawing analogies to these very important innovations across history, um, you'll start to have a, a an emerging realization of the, the, the real importance and significance of Bitcoin. So with that, let's jump into episode two. And at the, at the end of this, I'll do a little outro to hopefully synthesize some of these ideas. All right, thanks. We have the rise of man through the stone age and it took quite a long time, but we got here, that's impressive. We have the Roman, <clears throat> the Roman rise and, and we saw a sophisticated society mastering energy networks, logistics networks, advanced tools, political processes in order to, in order to dominate their sphere of influence. <clears throat> and um, by the age of the Antonines, around Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, those are like 100 years. It's a golden age of Rome. And that's like 90 AD to 180 AD. The average life expectancy of a Roman is, uh, is 72. And so if you're, you've, you've got baths, you've got writing, you've got civilization, you've got sanitation, you've got aqueducts, you've got roads, they've got stuff pretty well organized and sophisticated machines. And then of course, we take a, a hard left turn into the dark ages and stuff just starts to break down. <clears throat> and, um, It's a reminder that if you, that nothing is certain. If you miss a key insight, you could waste a thousand years. And um, stuff could have happened different way it didn't. For example, um, let's take the printing press. The Chinese developed printing presses way back 2000 years ago. <laughs> they never really thought to commercialize them and uh, the Chinese alphabet is a pictographic alphabet, and so you wouldn't need 25,000 different uh, type pieces in order to have like movable type in a printing press. And, and so they had the wrong language to develop printing presses. The Romans had the Roman alphabet, which is an ideal language because you could actually print anything with just like 26 or, or 50 pieces of movable type. And they had all the knowledge, but for some reason, they just stare. Anybody could have figured it out, Robert. Like, uh, all you got to do is walk in your boots through the mud and step on a nice floor and look down. Mm. <laughs> and there's the idea for a printing press. Yeah. Tracks in the mud, right? They had paint. They, they had dyes. And, you know, they're, they're just oh so close. And then 
they don't hit it. And we wait until whatever, 1453 or something for Gutenberg to work this out. And we're going to suffer for a thousand years. Um, it's amazing to me how certain things can be just right in front of a civilization and they just won't grab them. Like if you go, if you go to St. Peter's square to the Vatican and you look at that uh, column, that was, I think that used to be, tra it's now St. Peter's column, but it used to be Trajan's column. And Trajan's column was put up, you know, on the, <clears throat> you know, as a, to celebrate the triumph of Trajan and his wars. And um, it's a, um, it's a, a bas relief, a marble relief of the Dacian wars. And it wraps, spirals up the column, had a little staircase in the middle of it, a work of art and architecture. And at the top, Eventually, the Roman Catholics put the statue of St. Peter, I guess. Uh, and uh, in the ancient Roman times, that had Trajan's statue on it. And Trajan is standing there in his imperial robes. <laughs> and he's holding his hand up in the air. And do you know what he's holding in his hand? Uh, I, I don't know. He's holding the world and it's round robert he's holding the globe in his hand and this is 100 a.d fast hmm. forward 1400 years and people think the world is flat <laughs> it's like the romans knew the world was not flat right and if they hadn't ripped his statue off the column a thousand years earlier, or whenever they ripped it off and buried it somewhere, they would have known the world was round. And it's just, it's so ironic that you could learn and then forget such a basic thing. Right, right. So there is the possibility of significant civilizational regression if we ignore those learnings that we've accumulated over time. And yeah, you can go backwards and you, you think, well, we've got it. And if we do this, we're going to leap forward <laughs> into a new progressive era. But if we kill it at a pivotal point, maybe people forget it ever existed, like letting that fire go out. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you another one that blows my mind. <clears throat> if you go to the um, museum of, uh, of the Native American Indian or Native American in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> and you walk around, you see there's an entire civilization. I mean, they're pretty much hunter-gatherers. And if you want to understand how hunter-gatherers lived, I mean, the American and Native Americans, the way they were when the Europeans showed up in America is probably your best proxy for what, uh, what, the, what the Paleolithic man was, I guess. But amongst all the artifacts they gather, if you walk around, you eventually find a pottery wheel and the pottery wheel, it's a wheel in stone, and it's got a beautiful piece of pottery. <laughs> and the sign says, glowingly, yeah, Native Americans had very sophisticated pottery, and they knew how to mold clay, and they used this pottery wheel to do it. And I look at the wheel, and I think, for 5,000 years, Nobody in the entire continent thought to take the wheel and turn it this way <laughs> and roll it. Right. Like they knew a wheel. They knew a wheel was useful. Yeah. 
I give you the wheel, Robert, but they never invented the wheelbarrow. They never invented the wagon. There's no rolling stock anywhere in America. Incredible. And, you know, and so you're like, think about the consequences of that insight. Like, how is it possible that not a single person in the entire continent ever thought they might want to turn the wheel this way up? Right. But it's such a profound idea. Right. And yet, and yet you can go a thousand years and not get that idea. Do you think there's any modern examples that jump to mind that something that's maybe glaring at us in the modern age that we're ignoring or something that maybe we've forgotten or we're not, we're no longer respecting. Robert, the blockchain and Bitcoin is a wheel. It's a, I can use this stuff if I turn it this way, you know, it's like, I take a couple of, they're not complicated ideas, you know, public, uh, pretty good privacy, public private key encryption, hashing, you know, like no one of them on its own. I mean, they've all been sitting there and someone says, well, what if I just do that with it? I start this fire and it's, I rub two, rub two sticks together. Uh, or maybe I just never think to rub two sticks together. This, this calls to mind your example of the Roman hierarchy as well, that because everyone knew they were being watched, right? It maximized their accountability and therefore their, their performance and competence. And the Bitcoin network sort of the same. You have all the nodes and miners looking at one another's activity to make sure everything's above board all the time, right? It's instantly auditing itself constantly in real time. And you and you could say, right, the Romans were healthy as long as they kept tension and um, and um, dynam, dynamism and cap, and this incredible competition in their ecosystem. And when they lost it, they lost their edge. Right. And then, you know, when you look at the classic guns, germs, and steel type narratives, like the Europeans they got hardened and tougher because they were always fighting with each other and living with your animals made you tougher and having people come through from Asia made you tougher. And, you know, and, and uh, as soon as you try to insulate yourself from those stressors, right. And your civilization forgets how to do things or, right. or, to let, or, or never figures it out. Right. Taleb calls the, the stressors are the information, right? So you're actually cutting yourself off from the information flow that's driving your adaptation. So, yeah. So one way or the other, we meander through that, but it, it strikes me that it didn't have to last as long as it did. You know, life expectancy plunges down to 30 years from 72 years. And Wow. And in a world without technology, if you don't have <clears throat> aqueducts and, and sanitation and, and rules, like don't bring your horse into the middle of the village because he's going to crap all over everything and <laughs> going to get sick. Right? In the absence of all those those orderly rules, then then you um, you have just a degradation of the human condition. And we started to crawl out with the Renaissance. And, you know, like, what's interesting there, I think, is um, 
if you look at all the great cities in the world, all the great cities grew as nexus, as the central node of an empire. So Rome was the nexus of an empire. Carthage was the nexus of an empire. When they lose their empire, they collapse. The only way you generate enough money to make a great city is you have to scrape a tax off of all the energy, all the commercial value in a large place. A fisherman cast a wide net to capture the fish. That's your empire. The Roman, the, the Roman shtick was, you know, pay us 10% when it comes into Rome and 10% when it goes into the next port and we'll take 20% of the value added or maybe 30% or whatever we're going to take, right? Um, if you go into Venice and you look around the Grand Canal, you see all these palazzos, they're all just uh, warehouses. I bring a ship into Venice, I offload my cargo, and then it goes out the back and it gets barged up and down the canal and it gets transshipped to a new ship. In that world, each ship ran this route. Venice to Alexandria was one trade route. Venice to Rome is another trade route. Venice to Istanbul is another trade route. You're, you're at the nexus, you're running these shipping networks and of course you got to bribe the guy in Istanbul or maybe, you know, your son marries his daughter. And that's how, that's how you get to come in and out of Istanbul without getting murdered or getting your stuff stolen. You know, and eventually all the families in Venice intermarry, like, you know, I know you, you're my second cousin. That's how we don't cheat each other. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no way you can't solve the traveling salesman problem. There's no way I can take a ship from Istanbul to Alexandria, to Venice, <clears throat> to Rome, you know, to um, uh, Ibiza or wherever I would go, mm. right? Barcelona, right? because I would basically get overtaxed or extorted in each port unless I actually was, you know, friendly, right? Right, right. So the way that works is you have a hub and spoke system and um, there's always one central city and there's always one set of families or companies and they intermarry and they trust each other and they just agree, I'm going to buy wheat for a nickel or for a dime in Alexandria. I'm going to bring it to Venice and I'm going to sell it to you for 50 cents you're going to take it to Barcelona and sell it for a dollar mm. or, and you're going to pay and you're going to pay a nickel in tax to the guy on the other. And you know, you're going to get your 45 cents. I'm going to get my 45 cents. Those guys paid a dollar. These guys got paid a nickel. We can play with what's the markup, right? It might be, I buy it for a quarter, sell it for 50 and you sell it right, for right. 75 to the dude that sells it for a dollar. But invariably it's the people at the center of the network that are actually getting 10, 20, 30, 50% of all the commerce, which is all the energy. Now, and what's the definition of a smuggler or, you know, or a pirate? The definition of a smuggler is someone that doesn't want to give me half their stuff. Right. So how do I stop that? I have to have a Navy that goes to kill them. So, so you have the Carthaginian Navy stopping smuggling so they can tax half the stuff. And that's why Romans can't 
Carthago Delenda Est, right? Is it like, is it like uh, Pliny the Elder or, or Cato? I forget which one said in every speech he gave in the Senate for 20 years, Carthago Delenda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. Why? <laughs> because two people can't shake down the same guy of half his stuff. There's nothing left. If I take half your stuff as a tax, I can't, you know, it's like the tax wars. Yeah, yeah. The are taxing the shippers and the Romans want the money. So therefore, the Romans must defeat the Carthaginians. Now the Romans tax you, then they fall, and the Venetians rise. Now the Venetian Navy controls the Med. Then you've got, uh, you know, you ever go to Venice, there's this great um, Renaissance uh, painting, the Battle of Lepanto. And the Battle of Lepanto is when the King of Spain allies with the Pope from Rome, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, and with the Doge of Venice. And those three navies fight the uh, Turks, the, the, the invading Muslims from Istanbul, and they beat them. And, and it's the triumph of Christendom. But it gets you thinking about why did, why were they all killing each other in the first place over the Med? And you realize it's because they're fighting over control of the mercantile network. Right. And then the next interesting observation is you've heard the name, the word Roman Catholic Church, right? Uh, you ever heard the phrase Venetian Catholic? I don't think so. There was a time when the Venetians terminated the Catholic Church in Venice. The Catholic Church in the entire Venetian Empire didn't terminate with, with the Pope in Rome. It terminated with the Doge in Venice. And, and so that means all tithes, right, all do, goes to Venice and stops. You can't have an empire unless the person at the top of the empire is also in control of the religion. Because if you don't control the religion, then someone else takes half your money. You see, mm. it's, all, it's all about energy flow. Right. And, and the energy is flowing. By the way, the Pontifex Maximus originally refers uh, to, the, to the Roman consul, to the head of Rome, right? Augustus Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus. So the Romans had it eventually the, um, the high priest. Right. So the high priest, uh, the, the Roman consuls were the high priest of Rome for 700 years. If you're elected general, you're also the priest. You run all the religious ceremonies. They didn't separate those two. And so, so the church and the mercantile empire and the power to tax migrates from Rome to Venice. Okay. When did Venice start to decline? When they lost control of the of the church. Right. At the end of the day, they start sinking because you can't afford to maintain those buildings. You know, you can't afford to maintain 100-story buildings in Manhattan unless you're at the center of a financial empire. Right. I have to basically buy your bonds for 68 cents on the dollar and sell them at, at uh, 82 cents on right. the dollar and cut the difference. Right, right. You know, there are a lot of securities in, on Wall Street where there's only two market makers. There's the one bank and the other bank, and they trade with each other. And if you're buying, you're buying at the bottom 
uh, or you're buying at the top of the spread and you're selling at the bottom of the spread and the spread is 2%, Robert. And so if I turn <laughs> over a billion dollars worth of bonds, I'm paying $20 million in commissions and there's a monopoly there. And the $20 million is just flowing into what? It's flowing into the building. You know, and my buddy works for that bank and I work for this bank and we drink together and and we just kind of joke about the 200 basis point spread. Interesting. So it's the, these groups sort of competing to be the head gatekeeper in a way. Right. But to preserve that gatekeeping, it's intimately connected to the church control of religion, I guess you might say. So does this somehow connect uh the, the actual connections between money and religion. Like even today we have in God we trust on the U.S. dollar bill. For it takes us to the Reformation. By the way, if you go to Amsterdam, Amsterdam is the city of canals. It's a big mm-hmm. distribution. If you've ever seen a distribution center, mm-hmm. it's the, the trucks come in one side, it goes through a very complicated set of conveyors and it goes out the other side. These trucks come from the manufacturers. Those trucks go to the stores or the locales. And this, this distribution center is uh, a, wee, a maze of conveyors. Amsterdam's that, but it's that for barges before we had machines. That's what Venice is. That's what every, that's what every great mercantile, that's what uh, they did in every mercantile center. And when you get to you know Martin Luther's time, you realize... One of the key drivers is there's there's no way that we can rise uh, or, or elevate our civilization if we have to send all of our money to Rome. Right, right, right. You see this struggle with, throughout medieval history. William the Conqueror had that struggle. You see the struggle of the of the northern Europe, uh, northern European uh, German nobles, and then of course it punctuates itself with Henry VIII who eventually forms the Anglican church. So he can be the Pontifex Maximus. And if uh, the church terminates with the King of England, they don't have to ship any money, you know, down to Italy, nor do they have to ask permission to, to change their alliances and get married and do what they will. It's useful to have God on your side. It's always been useful. And so that drives a lot of stuff throughout the Renaissance. And it drives the, you know, you can say, you can say that Northern Europe broke off from the Roman Catholic Church for religious reasons, or you could say the Northern European powers to be created the religion for political reasons to, and economic reasons to break off from the Roman Catholic Church. But either way, you know, it's it's kind of a triumph of history that everybody's forgotten that there used to be lots of, why do they call it Roman Catholic if there weren't other Catholics? How many different branches of the Catholic Church do you think there were? Like a thousand. <laughs> there could have been a lot. They just kind of coalesced over time. But here's the general principle. Everywhere on earth where you see a big city, it was the center of an empire. Paris, London, Hong Kong, New York, Venice, Rome. Everywhere. You, and by the way, everywhere where you see a city that's fallen upon hard times, that's been destroyed, its empire lapsed. Carthage, Troy, right? You could name them on and on and on, right? Yeah, yeah. Venice, 
had an empire, lost an empire. And, and that's because you can't physically create this kind of economic density. I mean, you go to Paris and you look at uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame and you look at how much human effort went into creating Notre Dame. There are people that are selling postcards and bottled water in the shadow of Notre Dame Cathedral, making money off of tourists, where the guys inherited the concession from his father's 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 father. And if you go back 10 generations, the concession was 700 years old. Okay, they're living off of off of um, the vestiges of an empire long past. And now the question is, what are the empires of the future? Where do they form? And that takes us really to the Steel Age, you know, the 19th century, the, the robber barons and the like. And you can see with shipping networks, you know, those canals gave way to free ports and eventually gave way to container ships and container ships totally remade everything. And they, and they shifted power to Singapore and Hong Kong and companies like Maersk. And uh, ultimately it's a low energy, it's a componentized way to move things around. The most efficient way to move anything on earth is modern containers. By the way, the biggest rage in technology and servers today is containerized um, software via Kubernetes and Docker, <clears throat> which is the same principle as put all your stuff in a container ship and the container goes onto a ship. They've got standard loading facilities into a port. They've got standard, um, standard train cars and standard trucks, everything right. standardized. And the cost of the cost and the transparency of that was cut maybe by an order of magnitude with that innovation. Right. Standardization once again. Right. So what I do have a question about the the in, these empires that we've discussed historically. Um, I, uh, ostensibly, the purpose of an empire like this is to basically preserve the walls of the city, protect the peace honor private property rights within that dominion, right? Enforce contract law, uh, ensure that there's a nonviolent means for dispute resolution such, such that commerce can be conducted uh, fluidly. And I, I and you, you mentioned the empires of the future. It, this is something I think about a lot is that we've always needed this monopolist on violence to sort of honor private property rights within their jurisdiction. But another really interesting aspect of Bitcoin is that it's kind of, it's the first private property right that is agnostic of government completely, right? It, you don't need government to enforce the, your right to your private keys. It's like holding physical gold or any other bearer instrument. So I wonder how much that plays into the, the relevance of, of an, an empire in the historical sense kind of going into the future. Well, I guess, yeah, traditional empires are producing security. The number one export of the United States is security. Like literally, <clears throat> I, can, I can live in Miami Beach and I don't worry about someone shooting me across 
you know, the intercostal waterway. And if I was in certain other parts of the world, I'd have to be surrounded by a hundred bodyguards, right? So security, they, they have that saying about Genghis Khan. They said when uh, the Mongols controlled all of Asia, a virgin could have ridden from one end of the empire to the other with a pot of gold on her head and not be molested. <laughs> the Mongols weren't screwing around either. Yeah. <laughs> you, you intercept their mail, if anybody get anything gets stolen, anybody gets hurt, they show up with an empire, with an army and they murder everybody for a hundred miles in every direction, kind of to make the point, don't F with the system. Right. right? Now, uh, most of these empires, they generally provide this kind of security for their citizens, you know, <laughs> not always for the non-citizens or the aliens or the slaves or the whatever, whoever's <laughs> the underclass, but, but they do manage to establish them. Um, Bitcoin is a security and Bitcoin's number one, it's number one, uh, value proposition is security. It's, it's security of, of, uh, energy, right? If, if energy is translated to money and money is translated to Bitcoin and it's stored in the Bitcoin network, <clears throat> you're securitizing your assets, you know, in a cloud of behind a wall of encrypted energy. Mm. And um, in that regard, <clears throat> it provides an important right and empowerment to the individual. It hasn't quite addressed the physical security element, right? When we actually come up with something that will surround your person with a field of, uh, <clears throat> of um, I guess, uh, I guess repulsive energy, you're, you know, mm. Like Your own field. Or yeah. Right. Then you will have accomplished the same thing in the physical domain that Bitcoin does in the virtual domain. But it's oh. but but having um, if I secure your life force, right? Energy, money is energy, is life force, is money is power. If I secure your power that can be converted into, into physical security, either by allowing you to travel away from the, we have, we have the example, uh, Nazi Germany in the thirties, all the Jews had their money locked up in Germany. And so the way the system worked is, is they operated as bankers and they allowed people to uh, launder their money out of Germany and they would take a haircut 10, 20, 30, percent initially, then 50%, then 70%, then 90%. Until pretty soon they were, it was like a 90% haircut to get your value out. And so consequently, um, people didn't want to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you, if you don't have your monetary power or your assets secured virtually, then your physical security is always at risk because you can't leave, nor can you protect yourself, right? You can't, you can't pay for anything to protect yourself and you can't get out or you can't pay to get out. You, know, you would think that probably one of the most useful or common or, or not common, one of the compelling use cases of Bitcoin would be if I'm a refugee trying to flee a war zone because it's either that or gold and the problem with gold is there's a lot of people with guns. They're going to take it from you. Yep. 
at least with uh, Bitcoin, you could pay the guy with the gun half the money when you started and the other half when you got there. And the worst he can do is blow your head off, but he's not getting your money. Whereas if you got gold, he just blows your head off, takes the gold. Yep. So, so yeah, I, I think it's second order beneficial to physical security in a lot of different ways and it makes the world better, but it's first order beneficial to economic security. Um, if, we, uh, if we think about the steel age, <clears throat> These rail networks are, are, are another network to deliver, deliver um, energy faster, stronger, smarter, harder. Uh, of course, at the, at the nexus of every transportation hub, there's an economic center. So railheads, <clears throat> if a great city isn't a port, it's at the center of a railroad juncture. Uh-huh. And when you bring in, a lot of times, sometimes they, at the center of the rail juncture, you can tax all the trains. So if, if uh, goods come from Spain into Paris and they're going to Germany, the French get to take a tax right there in Paris. So the railheads became a, a nexus. The other fascinating thing about the railroads is they became really instrumental to logistics movement of armies and, and they drove economic and political power. And one Interesting example is Winston Churchill, when he was like 25, <clears throat> he wrote a book called The River War before he was famous for anything. In fact, he was quite the adventurer. He went off uh, to fight in uh, the war in the Sudan under Kitchener. And uh, the entire book is about the British um, working to, to win a war in the Sudan, and they had to, had to take Khartoum. And it's, it's like going 1,000 miles up the Nile, maybe 1,500 miles up the Nile, across desert. And, you know, and why would they want to do it? It's a very interesting question. But here's the bottom line. The entire outcome of the war comes down to the question, can the British build a railroad to Khartoum? And if the British succeed in building a railroad, they win. And if they can't build the railroad, they can't provision the army and they can't move their heavy equipment and they lose the war. <laughs> the entire war, it's called the river war, but it ought to be called the railroad war. It's just about building a railroad across a desert. And at the end of the day, the, as soon as the railroad arrived, a bunch of guys with explosives and Gatling guns showed up. They you know, devastated everybody. And it was not a fair fight at all. Like Gatling guns versus guys with spears and musket loaders. And it's kind of very unpleasant. You know, in our, if you read it through the modern view, you know, it doesn't necessarily leave you a good taste in your mouth. But it's a reminder that a lot of times the difference between winning and losing and living and dying is do you have railroads? I, got, I think there's a similar story in the American Civil War. If you look at the way railroads functioned and even the conquest of the continent, right? The Union Pacific Railroad. And <clears throat> once the railroad crossed the continent, you know, it's a manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. The United States was going to dominate without that railroad. Was it a thousand times more expensive to move stuff over land? Right, the right, right. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Google is, um, they're very good at saying, we don't do anything else that's going to be 10x or 100x better. I mean, so that's a Silicon Valley trope. 
you know, don't bother to do it unless you're going to have a breakthrough that's 100x. And well, all these things were 100x better, but a railroad we take for granted could be, I give you five tons of stuff, carry it from New York to California, count the amount of energy it's going to take you. Now put it on a railroad car, try again. All right. You think that's not faster and stronger? <laughs> thousand times faster? Thousand times stronger? Something like that. Orders of magnitude. And that takes us to John D. Rockefeller, right? <clears throat> Before Standard Oil comes along, people are actually hunting whales. They're getting in wooden ships, chasing around right. the Indian Ocean to kill a whale, boil down its blubber, make kerosene, and burn a lamp. No. Not a very efficient way to gather energy. <laughs> like, no. you know, so then along comes oil, and oil is a thousand times more efficient way to get energy. And what standard oil was, was <clears throat> it was first an energy producer, but it was also an energy storage device. It's a battery, right? Because the best way to store energy is put it in a tank. It was also an energy network. Uh, standard oil. They bought up all the, they didn't actually buy the fields, they bought the refineries. They refined the oil, they stored the oil, they bought up all the tanker cars, they bought up all the tanker ships, they locked down all of the networks and they basically had an energy network. They actually had guys driving around with carriages to deliver you know, their energy to every single retail store. They had retail distribution. They would even give away the furnaces to sell the energy. They did a Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. thing. You know, Amazon Prime, people think Jeff Bezos invented it. He didn't invent it. I mean, if you read the, you know, the biography of John D. Rockefeller, <clears throat> Rockefeller invented it all. Like he, he did it all. He gave away, you know, the razors to sell the razor blades. He's the first guy to realize that, by the way, that – you have to form a cartel or you have to form some kind of understanding of scarcity. If there's no scarcity, there's so much volatility that um, the market is chaotically destructive. So you had the world's first serious energy network there. And it's such a powerful network that a hundred years after Rockefeller's dead, those companies still are worth a trillion dollars, right? They're still oh. instrumental. Yeah. What, what, is, what does that mean? That you, you said that Rockefeller realized he had to institute a cartel in order to, I guess, in, impose scarcity on the market such to offset volatility. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Booms and busts. Like people would, well, you talk about scarcity. The problem of using a commodity as money is when the price goes up, people produce too much of it. Supply goes up, yeah. Well, so, so he, it was a very inefficient industry with massive volatility. <clears throat> and so he consolidated it to drop the volatility so that they could standardize every component along the way. Mm, interesting. <clears throat> so, uh, so that he could drive to a lower energy level, right? I mean, a more efficient, a more efficient energy system. And, um, and I mean, ultimately, right, that if you want to look at the human condition, you know, you ever get on one of those rowing machines and you row as hard as you can for an hour, you know, and, and you know, a kilowatt hour, hard to come by. And then you start to, oh, you start to think like, if I rowed 
all day long and I was an Olympic level rower, I think the sum total of my effort is like 29 cents. <laughs> like if, if you calculate, you know, yeah. the value of all of your human effort and in, in, uh, modern energy cost, a quarter, a nickel. Some people couldn't do a nickel worth of work, right? right? And you think about where we got to, and we got through to that uh, by channeling this energy. <clears throat> and uh, it, it must be, again, it's a 1,000x, 10,000x more right. energy. In fact, um, just a general theme you see everywhere where there's an explosion of innovation and an explosion of vitality. Somebody tapped into a thousand X more energy or, or figured out how to deliver the energy. Right. Some oil, you know, oil was originally, it was all about uh, kerosene and lighting and then heating. And then of course the automobile shot it up by a factor of 10 and that was the killer app. Uh -huh. um, but if you go on and to some other industrial era, robber baron type networks, here's an interesting one. Kraft, Hershey's, and uh, Post Cereal. They're technology companies. People don't think of them as that. Before they came along, um, there was no breakfast. That people didn't eat breakfast. Kraft and Post figured out how to box cornflakes and put it. And what they did is they stabilized food energy and put it in a container that didn't bleed the energy, that didn't leak energy. If I give you um, a bottle full of tomato sauce and I just make it in my kitchen and you put it in your refrigerator, it will spoil over some period of time. How much? Well, there's bacteria in it. The, the origin of branding the Kraft brand, the Hershey's brand, or whatever brand. <clears throat> the origin of branding is I make some, I make it in a clean room, hermetically sealed. Everybody has to clean up, scrub down, sterilize, get the bacteria off. I have machines to uh, to load the can, to seal the can, to seal the bottle. I stamp it with my brand. <clears throat> the number one value proposition, Robert, wasn't it's good ketchup. The number one, or, or it's good tomatoes or good soup or good whatever. The number one value proposition is it's not going to kill you. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. You're, yeah, right. You ever actually make some leftovers and leave it in your refrigerator for two months and eat it? By the way, here's a better one. Once you make something in your kitchen and then leave it in your closet for two months without a refrigerator, because they didn't have refrigerators. Frozen food came along later. And Marjorie Merriweather Post became like one of the richest women of the century. A, because her, her father gave her Post cereal and they were able to stabilize starch in a box at room temperature. And then B, because she brought, bought a frozen, the first frozen food company and she realized the ability to actually freeze food was going to be a game changer. <laughs> And before that, no one ever frozen food before. You think they're not technologists. Right. It's a food energy company. So That's what ener energy storage technologies, right? I mean, you, I mean, you need energy in food form, nutritional form yeah. to not die. Yeah. Right? 
if I could store it now, now it's like, it's very interesting here, right? Like, can I take electricity from Detroit and deliver it to you in San Francisco today? No. Can I deliver electricity from Detroit to Grand Rapids, Michigan? Yes. When it gets to you, how long can you store it in your battery? It bleeds 2% a month. <laughs> You'll probably lose it all in the year. Can I ship food from Detroit to Grand Rapids? Yeah. When it gets there, how long can you store it in your cellar? A day? A week? Well, if the answer is two weeks, there's no national business there. There's no national brand. The answer needs to be three months or six months. Now there's a national brand. Now it matters. So, so these guys that were launching these businesses, they were really launching clean room manufacturing plants that uh, captured energy or something of value. They, they were store of value, Robert. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> store of value that would not uh, decay or bleed due to bacterial infestation or spoilage. And because of that, the brand became important, just like the standard brand was important. The kerosene's not going to explode. It's clean, right? Yeah. Is it gasoline clean? Is the ketchup clean? You go to Hershey's, Pennsylvania, they got a factory. It's a work of art. If you, you know, it's more complicated than most computer programs. They wrote a computer program in steel. It's like, hmm. don't F that up, right? Like, uh. you can't, there's no version two coming write your program in an analog computer welded in steel that takes up a football field. That's what they did. And in one end goes like milk and eggs and, you know, and, yeah. you know, and out the other end comes like boxes of chocolate bars, 50,000 an hour. And it's not just, they come out perfectly uniform. It's they come out without bacteria in them and you can put them right. on a shelf and they won't make your kids sick. Right. And and therein is the rise of all of those CPG companies. It's interesting. I, I love the the perspective you have on all investment being an investment in technology, because that is what we are doing, right? We are making tools, protocols, technologies that basically improve our productivity. And that's how we that's how we advance is sort of layers of these innovations on top of one another such that basically every business is a technology business. I think that's a very unique insight I had never heard before. And then I think the, the other thing is the interesting connection between this hyper sanitation, right? To really make sure there's no bacteria or any um, anything that could cause harm to the user of energy, which would be the, the uh, eater of the food, how the, the hyper sanitation is connected to the preservation of the food or the energy store and that seems to somehow kind of mirror Bitcoin in a way that it's it's got a hyper sanitary ledger, right? There's never any errors in the blockchain whatsoever, such that it preserves its sanctity maximally across time. Like it's the most, uh, the best preservation technology of value because there's no uh, detritus in it, I guess it's you would say. the best branded asset in the history of the world right exactly maybe it's the first time someone came up with a way to cryptographically brand a security 
Yeah. Which uh, is an interesting idea. Yeah. Now, with regard to businesses, I would say that all of the great businesses, the growth companies, were all technology companies in their time. And eventually, and, and almost by definition, they stopped growing when they when they are no longer cutting edge technology companies, right? Mm-hmm. There are other businesses that are more like rent seeking businesses or their concessions. Yeah. The guy that sells bottled water in the shadow of the Notre Dame Cathedral, that's a business. It relies upon political largesse, you know, maybe, maybe there's a real estate business, right? I own that real estate and then I sell you water or lemonade on that real estate, right? There are those kind of businesses, but the growth companies, right? Standard Oil, you know, was a growth company, U.S. Steel, Boeing, IBM. In that period when they're growing, they're a technology company. And uh, that means that all growth stocks are technology companies by definition. Mm-hmm. You can buy another stock that's not a growth, you know, that's not a growth company or a non-tech company, but it's probably not a growth stock. In order to grow a non-technology company, you could then you could then make this uh, the assertion that you're going to need to do financial engineering, like roll-ups. Like I'm going to buy up every McDonald's or or every restaurant across the country with debt. Maybe that's a way to grow it. Or you need a concession from a regulator. You know, it's now illegal for you. <laughs> I'm the only person that can operate airports in the United States, right? I can grow that way. I need a concession, a political concession. And then I I suppose there's a place for innovative marketing, but I'm not, if there's not a, a compelling technology breakthrough, mm-hmm. I'm just not a big fan, right, of the, uh, of the right. marketing thing, you know, like, except for if the marketing breakthrough comes about due to technology, like, for example, I created a company that got famous because I'm famous on Twitter and YouTube, and that's not a bad idea. I'm the best marketer on a new medium. Maybe that can work. But then in the day, those aren't going to be trillion dollar, you know, in their day. I mean, like if the dollar is inflated or it's debased by a factor of 100 at least, well, I mean, John D. Rockefeller was worth – 300 400 million dollars in his money multiply it by a hundred yeah right multiply by 200 right you know he got to being worth a billion i think so he probably was worth 200 billion to 250 billion in his money and and that was in a day where uh where you didn't have access to all the deflationary tech uh services that are effectively free Right. So, so relatively speaking, right, that they had extraordinary power, but they were all technology capitalists. It's important at this point for us to just look at the impact of steel and aluminum through this entire era. Um, Carnegie created an empire based on steel and uh, Andrew Mellon's empire was substantially based on aluminum. 
and the alumina alcoa. And um, steel is an elemental force for the civil engineering industry. And aluminum became that elemental force for aviation. Uh, without steel, there really, there is no modern <laughs> city. You know, you build a building in wood, it's two stories, build a building in bricks or masonry, it's five stories as max. In order to create New York or London or any great city, you need steel and you need, of course, an elevator. <laughs> Straightforward things, but of the two of them, steel is the harder development. The elevator, you can probably figure out, it's a counterweight on a pulley, whereas <clears throat> Steel is is iron laced with carbon, and it's really hard. How hard? It's think think about how complicated it is in order to refine steel and shape steel when it's uh, molten and it melts through just about anything you might put it in or on. <laughs> You know, if you, if you read uh, any books on steel, like American Steel, I think by Richard Preston about Nucor, they talk about steel refinery blowouts. If you actually have uh, an, an accident in a steel refinery, and if the molten steel falls on the um, concrete, there's water vapor in the concrete. So molten steel superheats the water vapor. And what happens when water vapor gets hot or water gets hot? <laughs> Expands, yeah. explodes. Molten steel on, steel on concrete turns the entire refinery into a bomb and it blows up wow. and it kills everybody for a hundred meters in every direction. So technology or not technology? Harder technology, everybody thinks they're in the technology business today. Nobody deals with technology that's as dangerous and tricky as, you know, what Carnegie and those early steel, uh, steel refiners are dealing with, or the DuPonts handling nitroglycerin. Like, what do you think happens when you mishandle nitroglycerin? When you mishandle crypto, you lose some money. When you mishandle nitroglycerin, everything gets blown up again right. for half a mile in every direction. And uh, aluminum, again, not so easy either. So these, these are really difficult technologies, <clears throat> but really elemental because the difference between steel and no steel is do you build a hundred story skyscraper? Right? I guess you could say you might do something with iron, but iron's just got problems. Steel's the perfect material for civil engineering. It's, uh, it's cheap, it's got extraordinary tensile strength. If you, if you paint it or maintain, protect it from corrosion, it will last forever, literally forever, Robert. If, I, if you build a steel ship and you punch a hole in it, you can weld the hole with another piece of steel and the weld will be stronger than the original cold rolled steel. It's that strong. So in the world of strong, this is the strongest of strong materials. It's strong. It's cheap. Carnegie figured it out. They built every bridge with it. No steel, no bridges. No bridges, no Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. 
figure out what happens if you blow the bridges in Manhattan. You couldn't, everybody starved to death. You can't even get the food in fast enough. And of course, you can't hold the skyscrapers. So all modern civil engineering is based on steel. So then along comes aviation and they try to build a plane with steel. What happens? You ever see a steel airplane? No. It's the perfect material. It's cheap. It's indestructible. Why not build an airplane with steel? Too damn heavy. Too Just one little nuance. Just one little (laughs) problem. But that, you know, the fact that it's better than aluminum in every way, shape, and aluminum's 20 times more expensive than steel, you know, and it flexes and there's also, and it's difficult to work. It doesn't matter. Steel doesn't fly. Iron doesn't fly. Wood flies, mm. you know, canvas flies, fabric flies, but you try to find a metal which is stable. That's a, that's a, that's going to be a a structurally sound metal for aviation, and aluminum's the one. No aluminum, no aviation. Nothing. Right. Nothing. <laughs> like you're talking about balloons, right? Yeah. Or maybe you got the right flyer, <laughs> but, but it's an elemental force, and uh, and on that. Uh, element you make that breakthrough then you have hundreds uh, you have a trillion dollar industry right on that breakthrough how do you work it how do you create it how do you use it it's so interesting that these raw material breakthroughs then have so many follow-on consequences like first and second order consequences you know to the point where you're saying no steel no city no aluminum, no aircraft. And then we have to think about how much commerce is actually conducted through the city and through the aircraft. I mean, it is, it's foundational to global civilization as we know it. And they all kind of come down to networks that move energy around. Mm-hmm. Standard oil is an energy network. The railroads are, are energy networks, right? Oh, no railroad. No tanker car with energy on it, right? The railroad right. is the energy network moving the oil around. The airplanes, another energy network moving high frequency cargo around and information around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and each one of them, you know, build another one. And then the food networks. And the result of all of them is there are large corporations and huge, huge opportunities for wealth creation if you get to the node of the network. Mm. You know, one, one last point on the steel age before we move on, it's worth noting is, is average life expectancy at 1900 is 50 in America. It was 70 under the Romans. It was 30 in the dark ages. It might've been 32, 33 in the revolutionary war in the US. We crawl back up to 50, and um, and then by 1950, it's 70. And so probably the most rapid expansion in the quality of life in thousands of years is in that 50 years from 1900 to 1950 because of the conquest of infectious diseases. And that's all really a function of discovering 
you know, discovering the science of, of uh, microbes and sterilization, understanding that you need to be sterile. And then the second is antibiotics. And those two things together were extraordinary. Antibiotics alone and penicillin is responsible for the defeat of tuberculosis. And tuberculosis killed a billion people. The white plague, if you caught tuberculosis, it was a death sentence. I think it killed Chopin, killed all sorts of people. Mm -hmm. um, a billion people, more than any war. And of course, in this particular case, if you look at uh, history books on the 20th century, they give it like two paragraphs. <laughs> You know, you could, if you were awaiting the text based upon the significance of what happened, you prob probably, something like half of all the history of the 20th century ought to be just about, you know, penicillin, antibiotics, and sterilization, half, and everything else could be the other half. But in fact, it's not even 0.01%. The, the only measurable mortality rate in the 20th century is is the flu epidemic around 1920 where you could see a blip you you can't see a, a, an impact on the average life expectancy of any other event including all the wars mm -hmm. the wars don't world war one doesn't register world war two doesn't register nothing re it's kind of like just the the impact of technology of modern medicine and antibiotics and, and, and uh, networks and, and cheap energy and, and sterilization and sanitation and running water. The impact of that so dwarfs every political thing that took place in the century that what you've really got, I think it's just a chart that's just a small blip in 1920. And now it's like, you know, different estimates, 100 million people died, uh, 20 people say as much as 20%, 10 to 20% of the population died in that one or two year time frame, And they're still debating what that is, but it's the only event you can see on the chart. And uh, all of the activities of all, all the politicians and all the ideologies and everything we fought over turned out to be not as relevant, you know, as uh, defeating tuberculosis. Penicillin. And it was, uh, it was from a derived from a mycelium. Is that correct? It was left in a sink overnight, accidentally. Something to that effect. Yeah, and it's an accident. The guy, yeah. we, we get it from a from a, a, a fungus, uh, and um, it's accidental. Incredible. Just, and uh, and and powerful, but um, I don't know. I guess your takeaway from that is. Um, let people do their stuff and don't don't right don't try to channel people in any particular direction too much because uh, nature's a bit more complicated i think Talab makes a point that all of our innovation is or we'll, we'll say all we'll say the vast majority of innovation occurs through trial and error right this tinkering impulse that people naturally have versus this uh, image of the inventor alone in a room laboring for 20 years straight and all of a sudden he has a breakthrough. It's more like people working and tinkering all over the world and communicating that lead to these breakthroughs. Yeah, half of science is accidental. Yep. And half the stuff gets discovered, but the issue is no one decides to commercialize it or 
or they don't engineer it into the solution. So, so there's that, that phrase, um, I think William Gibson's phrase, the future's already with us. It's just not evenly distributed. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, guys. Episode two, so good. Uh, we're making progress. We're, we've now seen man rise through uh, Stone Age, Iron Age, regress into the Dark Ages, and then finally progress into the Steel Age. Um, and this leads us into the Industrial Revolution and um, where we are today, which is the Information Age. So I, I really appreciated Sailor's perspectives on this. I thought it was interesting that we take so much for granted today. We really think that all of these modern miracles generated by markets are a given. But if we look at the Dark Ages and realize that one key misstep can send us sliding back thousands of years. Um, I think it's a great lesson to deeply absorb and realize that none of this, none of this is promised. Um, and he, you know, he made the point clear with, you know, the boot print, right? The, the idea of the printing press was evident to anyone who had ever seen a, a footprint or a boot print. Yet for some reason, it took us a really long time to commercialize it. Uh, and realize it's, it's revolutionary potential. And uh, I also, when he pointed to Trajan, right, the guy from 100 AD, uh, the statue of Trajan, holding the globe, right, the spherical world in his hand in 100 AD. Yet fast forward to 1400 BC, and there's people in Europe, uh, pre-Columbus, that still think the world is flat. So it's so interesting to me that these ideas, powerful as they are, um, they can be missed, right? We can, we, we can hurt ourselves by not paying attention. Um, and not just at an individual level, but really at a, at a civilizational level. And um, I think, you know, as Sailor might call that, the fire of truth, right? When we, when we let the fire of truth be extinguished, um, it, society can regress into falsehood. The other uh, interesting point was the Native Americans of the pottery wheel, right? They had this device for, you know, who knows how many hundreds of years, but no one had figured out to turn it on its side, right? And realize all of the mechanical potential of the wheel, right? The, the wheelbarrow, the wagon, um, even things like the train and whatnot. They all uh, use the wheel to overcome frictions for terrestrial motion. Um, and I thought that was an interesting example of how some of our most important innovations can just be hidden in plain sight, frankly. Um, and this, is, this points towards Bitcoin for me in that so many people know there's something wrong in the world. They sense there's something really deeply wrong in the world today, but very few people understand how broken the money is and how much that contributes to the socioeconomic problems we're seeing the world over. So in that way, I kind of think we, the, the problem and the solution are hidden in plain sight, so to speak, and that we need to fix the money to fix many problems in the world. And when we got into the discussion about smugglers, right? So <laughs> the definition of a smuggler, which sounds like a, a criminal actor, is really just someone trying to protect their self-interest, right? There's someone that, that wants to conduct commerce through a port 
and not give away half of their stuff, as Sailor said. I thought that was very interesting. And that's actually where we get the term Freeport. I don't know if we touched on that in the episode or not, but the term Freeport means that you can dock there without having uh, you know half your stuff or a percentage of your stuff confiscated. And that leads us to the really important role that gatekeepers have played throughout history. Um, whatever local monopoly on violence existed, they always wielded that monopoly to extract value or rents or tax from those conducting business and creating economic surplus in their guarded territory, right? That's been kind of the name of the game throughout human history. And that's why we have the two adages, right? Death and taxes. Anywhere you go to conduct business, uh, you're going to get taxed and, you know, we're all mortal. We all die. So governments have always used the weapon of the law as an instrument of plunder, right? It is how they generate revenue is maximally extracting wealth from those that do business in their territory. But it's a it's a parasitic relationship. And if we look in the domain of biology, parasites actually don't uh, tax their host to death. That would be actually counter to their own self-interest. They want to extract uh, maximum value, but in a way that maintains the host's longevity, right? So it's kind of like establishing monopoly profits in an economic sense. There's a, there's a very particular point on the price curve where the monopolist sets their price to optimize their own profits, which isn't enough profit to say kill the consumer and force them not to be able to pay for it. And it's not a low price uh, like we'd see in free market competition, but it's like right at this peak point. Um, so I thought it was pretty interesting that we were able to see governments in that light. And that's why history has this distinct pattern of might is right. Yeah. You know, like, People have been competing to be the head gatekeeper, right? And this is this could be governmental, this could be religious, um, because it gives them a very the path of least resistance, if you will, for extracting value and becoming wealthy. And indeed, those were the first wealthy people in the world, were people that were able to specialize in violence or to specialize in religion um, to establish monopolies on on local commerce um, or, or local belief systems. And if you, and that, that, you know, points to the intimate relationship of government and religion and, um, you know, the defining feature of Western civilization today is the separation of church and state. That was uh, how we have secular society. It was a decoupling of those two institutions. And if we look at, say, a modern city like New York, I thought the point was great that those skyscrapers are constructed from the value that is extracted by financial intermediaries, right? Marcella gave the example of two bond traders in adjacent buildings uh, driving most of the volume in a market, and they both get to scrape, you know, their VIG, their one or two percent. And it reminds me of the hotels in the hotels in Vegas, right? The old joke is like the the buildings aren't built built by winning gamblers, right? It's the nature of being an intermediary is that you get to extract perpetual profits, basically from anyone doing business uh, within your network. And 
that's what money is, right? It's just this, it's a network of trust. And that's why the state has always fought to control and monopolize it because it gives them essentially unlimited power uh, and wealth to be able to confiscate that from the, uh, the entirety of their citizens. And um, that's what, you know, that's what tax is. That's what a, a rent is. Not a rent like you pay monthly for your apartment, but uh, rent in the economic sense is it is the intermediary or group preserving peace in that area. They get to siphon value off of it um, for the privilege of protection. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the, the problem with it is, is when it's a non, it, when it's priced at a non-consensual rate, right? When you have to pay 40% taxes to the government and you don't have any bargaining power in that relationship, that's the problem, right? That's when we move away from free market competition and towards monopolization. Uh, and that's what uh, creates so many problems in the world. And then when we shifted the discussion and started looking at standardized containers, I talked about that standardized container um, that you might see on the back of a semi-truck or that now goes in, uh, they also you know, ship across the ocean. Uh, when we started talking about the value again there of standardization, which we touched on a lot of this in episode one, when we looked at ancient Romans, when we are able to compress I guess you could say that protocols and standardization compress confusion, right? Because there's less optionality. So everyone knows the language. Everyone knows um, exactly what to expect. So you're able to execute actions very quickly and efficiently. And this creates a lot of economic surplus, right? This frees up a lot of time and resources, um, which are harnessed as well. They could be reallocated to other things. So it's, that is how we collapse fixed cost, right? Is by standardization. Um, and I think, and we'll talk about this more in a bit, but the pattern I see emerging is that at the beginning of an industry, uh, it's almost as if, a mon if there's not a natural monopoly, there's typically uh, attempted to be imposed a legal monopoly and this can have some short run benefit because it establishes standards, but it's at the long run detriment of the market because again, the monopolist is essentially extracting wealth from other market participants. Um, but we'll talk about that more shortly. So when we looked at empires, I love how Sailor painted them in that the number one export of an empire is security, right? That's what the U.S. is today, right? We're the imperialist that runs the world. Uh, we export security. If you look at a map of how many U.S. military bases there are worldwide, we're basically everywhere except Russia and China. Um, and it's interesting to me how Bitcoin fits into that picture because Bitcoin's number one value proposition is security, right? It's security of your time and energy in a medium that cannot be compromised. And uh, as, as Sailor described that, he said it's like a technology, Bitcoin, for securitizing your time and energy behind an impenetrable wall of encrypted energy, right? So it's this, it's a very unique tool and that for the first time in history, we have a place to put our life force, right, or our wealth that is independent of any political 
happenings in the world, right? It's an apolitical money, uh, which is which is very central to its value proposition. And although Bitcoin hasn't, so it clearly has a huge relationship with security. Although it hasn't clearly hasn't solved physical security, right? Bitcoin's not a force field or anything like that. It does have some interesting potential implications in that because it's programmatic, um, you could say program a payment to be issued to a gatekeeper like half before you pass the gate, whatever the gate may be, whether this is a border um, or um, anything, anything that a gatekeeper does, and then program such that they receive half a payment after. So it can actually reduce the incentives to violence, right, and increase the incentives to cooperation. So it'll be interesting to see how Bitcoin fits into the empires of the future. And then we went into the steel age, which, you know, steel is just such a fascinating thing. It's this raw material for building these networks um, in a really permanent fashion, right? Um, and again, if we look at what people are, people are, like, as I say in some of my writing, we're the networked species, right? We, we dominate the planet with our wits, right? Because of our ability to abstract, to tell stories like money, like nation states, like human rights. Um, and this is all, that entire thesis is encapsulated really well in the book Sapiens, if you haven't read that. And our ability to abstract these stories, orient ourselves around them, and then communicate about them very precisely and very quickly. That's what lets us function as a, almost like a single harmonious organism, which we could say that's what the, the world economy is, right? We're, we're communicating with each other with words and prices uh, and, and shifting uh, the allocation of resources to their highest and best use, uh, at, at least in a purely free market. Central banking clearly distorts a lot of that. And in that context, steel was critical to building out kinetic networks, right? The railroad, the ability to move people and military assets 1,000x or 10,000x more cheaply across land, right? Sailor was making the point that uh, wars were won and lost based on the successful construction of railroads. And this drove an interconnectivity of people and cities across land. Um, so it's one of these, these primordial uh, networks for civilization, what was the railroad. And behind that were the roads, right, built by the Romans again. And um, that took us to John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. Um, I, thought, I think the point was great about light. Again, you know, before we figured out how to harness oil, right? Oil being this compressed energy source from ancient sunlight, right? It's sunlight that's fallen on the earth for tens of thousands of millions of years and has been compressed uh, into its subterranean layers that we're then able to harness um, to radically increase our productivity as we've seen in the industrial age. Before that, before we figured out oil, we were literally going to see hunting whales, right? Harpooning whales to harness, to harvest their blubber uh, for candlelight. Um, so the, the, the productivity, and I've seen the math on this before, I can't quote it exactly, but 
the amount of energy necessary to produce a single lumen, which would be a unit of, of light radiance, going from, a, from needing to hunt whales to produce candles to harnessing oil, like again, it was orders of magnitude more cheap uh, to, to actually create um, light, right? Um, so I thought that was really energy, really interesting. And um, oil basically was this, like fire almost, this primary energy network, right? That we were able to tap and just radically accelerate how quickly the economy was producing wealth and new things and new innovations. Um, so again, if we consider that we're channeling energy across our intellect to create new and useful things. It's as if our intellect hit this uh, new, really potent source of energy when we figured out oil. And Rockefeller, you know, he he captured the entire value stream, right? He built out the logistics network. He had the train cars, the container ships, the trucks. Uh, Sailor made the point he was giving away the furnaces for free, so he had the freemium model. He's giving away the furnace to sell the oil, so to speak. Um, and he originated that this cartel model of owning the whole supply chain uh, so he could standardize the industry, which I thought was super interesting because, again, we're back to standardization where a monopolist can come in and lay out this singular unitary plan to kind of mute the volatility, right? To mute the competition, which is long-term bad, but short-term sort of a benefit in that that monopolist now gets to set standards, right? He can create standards that everyone else will be forced to operate on uh, if, if done correctly forever, right? They, he almost gets to be the incipient of the path dependence of the network that he's creating. And so this the thing that comes to mind is monopolies serving this function, perhaps, of muting volatility in the early stages of an industrial or particular industry's development and to establish standards, which then commoditizes the space. And uh, assuming you can get, remove that monopoly after it's served its function of setting the standards, then you let free market competition take hold on those standards and it's more beneficial, right? Versus if you just set out in the beginning with pure free market competition, then it's hard to get uh, the industry to interoperate well because of the lack of standards. So it, it's a bit of a mind twist for me, but uh, the, the old saying comes to mind, if you, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. It's as if a monopolistic single unitary plan enables you to go fast, right? Really build out an industry really quickly. Um, even in the information age today, right? I think we're very early and we're seeing the monopolists take a big lead, right? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. But over time, I would suspect that the standards that they have been setting will start to be opened up to more free market competition and we'll see uh, the demonopolization of this space and with that, the decline in cost, um, which then, you know, again, frees up all this economic abundance that man can reallocate towards the next major wave of innovation. So it's a lot to think about there, but uh, it seems like there's something natural, some natural interplay between uh, monopolistic and free market competition. 
And that led to, you know, Rockefeller figuring out standardizing oil led to Henry Ford's production of the automobile. And the automobile, as Saylor said, was the killer app for oil, right? Um, and when we think about the automobile, it's like, what was invented, right? We think it's just this vehicle for getting us from A to B, but it enabled all of a sudden uh, the density of the city, the economic network density of the city to be a reality because then people could commute into the city and commute out. Um, it created a lot of the pollution we see in the world today. Uh, it changed people's self-identity, right? Like the car is an avatar of who we are. People um, often use automobiles today as kind of a status symbol. So it, it's just a total game changer, right? The invention of the automobile, which again is one of those innovations that sort of sprung up from uh, the mastering of the oil energy network. And uh, I thought it was interesting too how Rockefeller was basically the most wealthy guy in history. I think Sailor made the point he was worth over $200 billion in today's dollars. But Rockefeller died in, say, 1937. The refrigerator wasn't even commercialized until like uh, early 1920s. So this is a guy, the richest guy in the world, right, didn't even have a refrigerator. So if you today have a refrigerator, you in some ways are more wealthy than John D. Rockefeller was, um, you know, just a little, little less than 100 years ago. And that, I think, is just a testament to the abundance created by free markets, right? It's like every living generation, assuming we're optimizing for, uh, for productivity improvement, is head and shoulders above the prior generation, even the richest of the prior generation. And then we got into a discussion about Kraft, Hershey's, and Post Foods. I, I never thought about this before, that the business they were in was actually selling stabilized energy, right? Like food is inherently unstable. It doesn't keep well, especially before the invention of the refrigerator. And these innovators figured out basically how to stabilize food energy at room temperature. And the value proposition they were selling is that their food doesn't kill you, which I thought was just great. It's like this, again, they were, they're technologists, right? We think of it as food and we think today it's no big deal. Like we go to the grocery store and we buy boxes or cans or bottles or whatever we want. But this was a major breakthrough um, for, for supporting larger populations like we have in the world today. And, um, it kind of reminds me of the certification function on coinage and bills too, because, you know, Sailor made the point, I'd never thought of a brand like this, that the brand was like, you know, this food won't kill you. Just like a gold coin uh, stamped by a government or a private certification business was saying, this is one ounce of gold, or this is 10 ounces of silver, whatever it was. So it's, it's a trust thing, right? You learn to trust the brand to represent what it says it is. Um, and then also in food, you know, frozen food was a total game changer. Like the fact that we could, you know, suck all the entropy out of food and keep it for extremely long periods of time, uh, just allowed us to accumulate the savings of food, right? Um, it, you know, we all take it for granted today, but again, a freezer and a refrigerator, like we should just... <laughs> stop in awe of our freezer and refrigerator every day and just think about how amazing it is that we figured out a way to suck the entropy out of food 
and store food energy for over extremely long periods of time. And in, in that context, in a monetary sense, we could say that fiat currency is a high entropy storage device, right? It leaks a lot. It, it, it suffers from spoilage over time. Whereas Bitcoin could be considered like the deep freeze, you know, the absolute zero of storing monetary energy. It sucks all the entropy out of it. Um, and you know that you'll own a guaranteed fraction of the total money supply for all time. Um, so that, that analogy was interesting to me as well. And I liked how he talked about food factories being, again, they're technologists. They were computer programs written in steel. So one end of this program, you input eggs and flour and milk or whatever it is. And at the other end of this you know, steel computer program, it outputs cookies that you can then um, box, you know, wrap in plastic, put on the shelf, and they last for a year or whatever the number is. Um, this is a, a totally new and unique way to look at, at food and consumer packaged goods in general. And in that way, they were they were stores of value, right? Food, this consumer packaged good industry was in the business of storing value, right? They're storing food energy as value and selling it. And they were able to accomplish that through hyper sanitization, right? They were, I'm sorry, hyper sanitation. So they're removing all of the detritus and um, any uncleanliness from the food packaging process. And in doing so, they're able to output a product that was guaranteed to last for a fixed amount of time. And again, the analogy there to Bitcoin being this hyper sanitized ledger, right? There's all of the nodes are all checking and the miners are all checking one another's work to make sure it's being done consistent with the rules of the protocol, which are 100% open and transparent to everyone. And that's what makes it this ultimate preservation device of monetary energy. Um, so, the, you know, just mind-blowing comparisons between consumer, consumer food products and Bitcoin. Um, and in that way, you know, Sailor hit this on the head. If I saw the brand, the concept of a brand in a new way. Like I used to think a brand was just a company's logo and reputation. But to his point, the brand was the certification saying this product is what it says it is. You can trust the reputation of this group. And, you know, particularly this food won't kill you, right? Something that's pretty important, something you're going to eat and put in your body. You can reliably trust this brand that it won't kill you, right? They're, they're trading, the producers trading on their own reputation, if you will. And I thought he just hit the button right on the head when he said, in that sense, Bitcoin is the best branded asset in history because Bitcoin does do exactly what it says it will do. Nothing less, nothing more. And there's no element of human corruption that can change that, right? Like you could install a new CEO at Kraft Foods and he could say, to hell with a customer, I'm going to start putting rat poison in my cheese crackers or whatever, right? Can do some outlandish stuff to ruin the reputation of the business. 
But Bitcoin is this leaderless institution, right, that just runs the rules of the protocol and it doesn't change, it doesn't bend. Uh, so that was just mind blowing for me. It's something I'm gonna be thinking about for a really long time. And um, then we got into steel, you know, uh, with, with Andrew Carnegie mastering this ultimate raw material for civil engineering, right? Sailor made the point, steel is cheap, high, high tensile strength. If you paint it, uh, it basically lasts forever. So it's non-corrosive as long as you seal it off from air and water. And then the, if you damage it and decide to repair it with a weld, uh, welding, the, the welding, welding is how you say that, Welding is actually stronger than the original steel itself. So it's just, again, another one of these fundamental breakthroughs in raw materials that supported uh, higher civilizational advance. And then we talked about aviation. Clearly, steel is good for a lot of things, but no good for aviation because it's too heavy. So we had to figure out aluminum. Um, and so much... I don't know, my, my epiphany here is that so much was riding on these raw material breakthroughs. Um, you, we're, we're discovering new foundational elements to society, and there's a lot of upstream consequences that we can't even imagine, right? Like when someone figured out steel, or figured out steel, who knew we were going to figure out the city, and then figure out, you know, aluminum, figure out aviation, and then figure out... Uh, say fiber optics encircling the planet, figuring out the internet, figuring out um, YouTube, right? It's just these layers of innovation. And the from the point of innovation, it's very difficult, it's impossible, frankly, to see where it's going to go. So it just it unlocks all this potential human ingenuity to discover all these other things uh, in kind of a cascading effect. So you know, as you said, no steel, no city, no aluminum, no aviation. And just think about just those two. We just stopped there. If we had no city and we had no aviation, how much of the world would we not have today? Uh, I mean, how many of you have flown, right? How many of you have lived in a city? It's really hard to fathom how much just these two raw material breakthroughs have changed our lives. And again, in my mind, it's all... It all comes down to increasing the energetic or network density, right? So we're increasing the possibility of exchange, right? We, we increase, say, the, the uh, economic and population density of a city increases exchange within that city. So it's pumping out more ideas and innovations. And there's, there's great books on this. Uh, I think it's called The Serendipity of the City, maybe, where it talks about this relationship between population density and innovation, right? The more population density there is, the more innovation tends to come out of it. And then in, the, in aviation sense, it's about overcoming the frictions to free exchange, right? All, most people born 200 years ago would really never leave, say, a 30-mile radius of where they're born, give or take. Um, and maybe those numbers are wrong, but you get the point. The world has opened up to us with aviation. I mean, you can go anywhere in the world now within a day right? Anywhere in the world. Uh, it used to take, it took settlers in the U.S., what, three or four months to cross the continent if you didn't die, you know, by, from disease or whatever. So 
again, it just points towards the importance of free exchange and how these raw material breakthroughs support more network density, which increases free, accelerates free exchange even more and leads to more and more uh, breakthroughs in a cascading fashion. And the analogy I like there is that Bitcoin, it kind of is like financial steel, right? It's just the best tool for the job and it doesn't, it just works, right? It doesn't bend, it doesn't break. It just is an absolutely perfected monetary technology. And it's also, it's steel, but it also has wings, right? Because you can just send it anywhere, you can store it in your mind or in a computer anywhere. So it has all this flexibility too. Um, and it can be programmed to do different things and you can build different uh, features and, and modules on top of the protocol and you can build higher layer protocols. And, uh, it's just one of those type of breakthroughs where it's like a raw material slash network breakthrough. Um, so it's a lot to think about there. And then finally, we talked a bit about the conquest of infectious diseases, which clearly we haven't conquered all of them, but we've, we've done a lot. Um, and Sailor made the point that these breakthroughs are the best amplifiers of life expectancy ever, right? The um, curing to, to tuberculosis, which killed a billion people, right? That had an immediate impact uh, on the, the life expectancy curve, which the World War I and World War II were just a blip, right? So makes the point that technology is increasingly uh, more of a variable on our progress as it's almost like technology is becoming exponentially more important to us as we innovate further, uh, which, which gets us into the information age. And, um, the, the wars, which are more of like political actions, these matter much less in the long scheme of, of human history. But there's a distortion in the history books, right? If you go to read history, you're going to read 99 pages about World War and World War One and Two, maybe 9900 for every one page you'll read about tuberculosis. So there's there's this asymmetry uh, in terms of how important the breakthrough is versus how much is written about it, which I thought was was fascinating. And penicillin, you know, that, that breakthrough that increased our life expectancy so much, it was accidental, right? It, again, as, as Taleb would say, tinkering is an anti-fragile process. So it's the more entropy or uncertainty or randomness we can introduce to the process, the more breakthroughs we have that can be accidental at times, right? Penicillin was... I think it was a mycelium or a fungus left in a sink overnight, right? And then something grew on it. Someone tested it. Someone figured out, holy crap, holy cow, this thing cures disease uh, and infection. And it just radically changed the world, right? One of the most important discoveries in the history of man uh, from an accident, right? So I think it just points to what we need to optimize society for, which is free exchange and experimentation. That's how we create the most wealth in the world. That's how we solve problems. That's how we increase life expectancy. So that was a killer episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, 
and we'll see you back soon for episode three.